Well, hey, this morning, if you have your Bible or you have the YouVersion Bible app, feel free to go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to be starting right at the beginning of the chapter. It's where we left off just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we moved around a little bit just for Easter, but we'll rack here, continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And if you remember, we left it off right where Jesus had come into Jerusalem. He had had several teaching moments with uh, specifically many Pharisees, many of the religious leaders, and there's kind of this butting of heads going on. The religious leaders, they do not like what Jesus is doing. He threatens their popularity, their power, their money. And so they are trying to devise this plan uh, to get Jesus down. Now, remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that they've already tried questioning Jesus. They tried tricking Jesus in front of a lot of people, and it didn't work. Jesus came back and he's like, no, this stuff, it's not going to work. He came back and he responded well. And so it just didn't work. And so what they're trying to do now is get Jesus down, but they're in a little bit of a predicament. You see, the people still love what Jesus is doing. And there's a lot of people here in Luke chapter 22. Take a look. There is a feast that many people have come into Jerusalem for. Let me read it to you. It's uh, here in Luke chapter 22. This is what it says. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and confirmed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give, it to, uh, give him the money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him, them in the absence of a crowd. We're going to talk about this. I know it's a real short passage. We're used to talking about maybe a little bit longer of passages, but I was preparing for this. I was going to tackle a little bit more and kind of do the next kind of paragraph there in Scripture. And I really just felt led to say, hey, you know what? I think there's some valuable lessons here that we need to learn from. So let's uh, just go before God. Let's ask him for his help with that before we dive in, and then we'll talk about it. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your good and your perfect will, or word over our lives. And uh, Father, I pray that as we dive into your word this morning, uh, we would apply it to our lives. That again, we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, as the book of James says, but that we'd be doers. That when we leave this place, we would apply your word to our lives. Holy Spirit, would you mold us? Would you conform us to your will? Father, would you mold us to look less like us and more like you? Help us to do that. Help us to glorify you in everything that we do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, I've shared with you uh, before, but I had a job uh, a lot of, uh, through college. It was at Sprint, and I would sell cell phones. I would upgrade people. I know it's like the people you really love, right, going and talking to the cell phone salesman and having him upsell, but that's what I was trained to do. Uh, in fact, when I got this job, I was in between my freshman and my sophomore year of college, and uh, basically my only work experience uh, was working at the kitchen at Prairie Camp Washing Dishes and at the Meyer Deli. I would, I would like slice meat and cheese. And so I had 
zero sales experience. In fact, I'm not even sure why they really hired me. I think it was an act of God. He knew I needed the money to get through college. And so I literally, uh, I went into that job with zero sales experience, even though it was required. And so what they did with me for the first couple of weeks is they said, you know what, we're not going to train you on the technology, on all the phones, on how to run the computer system that they had going on. We're just going to train you on sales tactics. And so literally what the manager had me do is he would have me sit in the back for like the first two weeks and just observe. And he said, I just want you to sit here. If we get busy, we'll have you greet. I just want you to sit in the back and I want you to watch what everyone else does. I was like, all right, well, that seems kind of weird. I mean, how hard is it to sell a phone, right? I mean, these things are awesome, right? They call, they text, you can surf the web. Uh, I mean, it, what, what is it to it? And he goes, okay. Uh, and so I kind of pushed back. I was like, no, let me, let me add it. And, and so he's like, all right, um, let, why don't you sell this phone to me? And I was like, this one? I'm like, all right. So I kind of stumbled over my words and he goes, I'm going to show you what the worst technique possible is. And he showed me, he goes, all right, come on in here. We got you a new phone here. Uh, it's $8,000. Here's what we need to sign up for, uh, your mobile plan. Uh, it's going to be really expensive, but you're going to love it. It's got all the bells and whistles here. You can sign here. And he just showed me like the worst possible way to sell phones. And I was like, man, that's the same way I, I just... I did that. I sold, I, I, in our little scenario, I did that to our manager. And he goes, go and observe. And so I did, and I eventually learned it. But it was good to hear that bad example of how not to do something and realize, man, I'm actually a lot more apt to do the wrong thing than I am the right thing. And as I take a look at this scripture passage here, we see a guy who did the wrong thing. You guys know him. He's Judas Iscariot. He is the one who betrays Jesus. And we don't know much about Judas. He's actually not mentioned very often throughout all of the Gospels, just a handful of times. And so we don't know a ton about this guy, but here's what we do know. Number one, he's an apostle. He, I'm sorry, he's one of the disciples. He's one of these 12. He follows Jesus around. He's been with them for a few years. And the Gospel of John tells us he also carries around all the money. That he was the handler of the money bag. And the Gospel of John says that he would often help himself to the money. He's a thief. He stole Jesus's and the other disciples' money. The money that they would go off and buy things like food with. Now, how outrageous, right? Because think about this. Uh, Judas, he would steal the money and he would say, you know what? Uh, you know what? Let's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the best meal out there. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to have as much food as I could possibly want. Think about what Jesus does, though. I mean, he took one kid's Lunchable and fed 5,000 people with it. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? He's stealing Jesus' money and leaving him. Now, we know Judas, he's not a great guy. The other thing is, too, we also know that Judas is not a believer in Jesus. We get that from verse 3. It says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot. Now, we believe that if the Holy Spirit is abiding within you, which we believe is a promise for all believers, right? If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you now have the Holy Spirit living within you. The Holy Spirit does not sublet out certain rooms in your body to Satan, right? That's ridiculous. Satan and the Holy Spirit cannot abide within you at the same time. So here's the assurance that all believers have is that you cannot be demon-possessed. Satan cannot live within you. So if Judas has Satan within him, we know that he has walked around with Jesus. He said all the right things, but he has not accepted Jesus 
as his Lord and Savior. So let's put this in context real quick. Let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. It says, now this is the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. So Passover is when the Israelites would have celebrated what happened back in Exodus. Remember Moses, he is commanded by God to go to Pharaoh to uh, ask him to free all the people. Pharaoh says no, and so a plague comes. Moses asks again, Pharaoh says no, and then a plague comes. This comes 10 times, and at the end, the 10th plague was the death of every firstborn uh, son. And so what happens is uh, God says, you know what, Israelites, I'm going to make a way out for you. I'm going to make a way so that death doesn't have to happen. All you have to do is sacrifice a perfect unblemished lamb. You put that blood around your doorstep, and then I will pass over you. That's why they call it Passover. And so every year, the Israelites were commanded to celebrate this. Now, if you could, it was an immense honor to be able to go to Jerusalem for Passover. I mean, this is a crazy honor. In fact, I am told by Jewish people even today that at the end of Passover, they have a Hebrew phrase that they repeat that translates to next year in Jerusalem. Essentially, it is a huge honor for an Israelite or a Jewish person to come here and to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover here. And so we have a ton of people in Jerusalem. When Jesus is here, millions and millions of people would have come to Jerusalem. It is said that there were 250 thousand lambs sacrificed and that a lamb could feed well over 10 people. And so just conservative numbers, that's two and a half million people here in the city of Jerusalem. Now here's what's really interesting. The feast of the Passover would have happened at the beginning of the Sabbath day. Sabbath was Saturday, but the way Jewish people would recognize the day is that actually that day would start on sundown on Friday. Now, they don't have refrigerators and everything like that. And so what they would have to do is they would have to sacrifice the lambs right before then, about 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, they would have to sacrifice these lambs in order to celebrate this Passover feast. Interestingly enough, and we'll get to this in the next coming, upcoming weeks, why this is so important, but Jesus himself died around 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. That's why we call Jesus the Lamb of God. This is the name that Scripture has for him, that he replaced this sacrifice. We no longer have to do this because of what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. So this is the setting that we're getting here. There's millions of people. Jerusalem is crowded. Every hotel room would have been packed. Everyone who had relatives in from out of town would have been housing them. I mean, everybody is here. And so it says this in verse 2, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to know how to put them to death, for they feared the people. Now remember, all the people love Jesus at this point. They want him. They, they, they are excited to hear what he is teaching. Now that will change very quickly. And Judas is going to sell him out. Take a look here in verse 4. It says, Judas goes away and he conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. I want to talk about these couple of bad examples that we get from Judas. Because let's be honest. If Judas fell into temptation, we know that as well, we can too, right? As believers, we even still have temptation. Jesus himself was tempted to sin. He never did, but he was tempted. And as uh, people here on earth, we constantly have temptations. So how do you avoid that? I want to take a look at Judas's example here. Take a look at his bad example and say, hey, what can we learn from that? 
How can we avoid temptations? How can we safeguard our life from sin? Let's take a look here. I think that there's a few things that we first have to realize. Verse 3 tells us that Satan, again, entered into Judas. The first thing I think that we have to realize is that the enemy is real. We have an enemy that is against us, and although he cannot possess us if we are believers, he still does pose a danger to us. First Peter puts it like this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around. Look at this, this is a really interesting image that we get. Prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, you're not the only one that's tempted to sin. Whatever sin that uh, you feel tempted to the most, I guarantee you there are millions and millions of other people who struggle with that same sin. Sometimes we can feel isolated. Sometimes the enemy can make us feel really isolated. Like, oh, you're the only one that deals with that. I can't believe you. You're horrible. God could never want you. And that could not be further from the truth. As believers, we are going to be tempted to do certain things. And the enemy wants nothing more for us than to fall into that. So know this, you are in good company. And look at this, further on in this passage, it gives us some pointers. It says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I don't know about you, but I need to be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. And that's the goodness of God, that he says, I'm going to come alongside you in the midst of your temptations. In the midst of your struggles, I'm going to come alongside you. I'm here to restore you. I'm here to confirm you. I'm here to strengthen you. And I'm here to establish you. But the enemy, uh, it doesn't always come in the way that we think we will, right? I mean, think about it. Uh, what is uh, Hollywood? If you, if you watch a, a commercial or a movie and they're depicting the devil, how is he? He's a little red man with horns and a pitchfork, right? And maybe he's on a shoulder and there's an angel on the other shoulder and, you know, it's easy to pick him out, right? Well, take a look at actually what 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us. It's talking about this and it says, For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Look at this. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Sometimes the enemy is going to disguise himself and it's going to look really good. And so in the midst of that, if you're not sure, if you're like, man, is this, I don't know, is this voice, is this true? I, I don't know. Here's what I want you to do. Go to scripture and confer that. Because God will not contradict his word. His word is perfect. He is perfect. He's never changing. He doesn't have to change because he is perfect. So just go to God's word and say, you know what, is, is that true? Is what I'm feeling true? There are entire denominations of churches who have gone astray because some people followed what they thought was God's word, and it's just not. And they're contradicting God's word. But I, I want to encourage you because sometimes that can sound really scary and you're like, ah, I don't know what's going on here and I'm going to fall away at any point. Let me tell you, God is bigger than the enemy. I just want to share with you the end of the story in Revelation chapter 12. It talks a little bit about it. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, and the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. 
and his angels were thrown down with him. The end of the story is clear. Jesus wins. But for us here and now, we still have to deal with the enemy. The enemy is real. Here's what else I want to point out to you here in Luke chapter 22. Take a look here with me. It says, Then Satan entered Judas, again, called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. Look at this. And he went away. I want you to think about this just for a moment, because when I read this, it's like almost mind-boggling. I mean, think about this. Judas, he's walking as one of the disciples with Jesus. He's just walking around. Jesus is healing people. He brought Lazarus from the dead and back to life now. He's making blind people see again. I mean, this is crazy. He's making lame people walk. Like, it's just nuts. He's feeding 5,000 people with one guy's lunchable. I mean, it's just crazy what Jesus is doing here. Now, I want you to think about this. Judas, this entire time, has seen what Jesus has done. He's heard his teachings directly. He sat around a campfire with the 12 disciples and Jesus and camped out with Jesus for three years. I mean, and still, look at this. Satan gets into Judas and Judas walks away. I've heard some people say, you know, I would be a believer if I could see Jesus face to face. It didn't work for Judas. You have to have faith. You have to believe. Judas went away. Here's what I want to point out to you. In this life, in this life, there will be constant temptations. They will be constantly lurking. Always. You are never going to be free. This side of heaven, you will never be free of temptations. So here's what I want you to do. You have to be on your guard. Ephesians 4.27 says, give no opportunity to the devil. Can we have some real talk here? If you struggle with something, get that out of your life. Jesus goes so far to say, hey, listen, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Get it out of your life. Maybe you need to say, you know what, from this time to this time, the internet router is going in the garage. It's gone. I'm getting out of here. Maybe you have to say, you know what, I can no longer work in this work environment because it is just causing me to sin over and over and over again, and I need to go get a new job. Or this person that I'm constantly with, man, I don't know what it is about it, but I just stumble and stumble and stumble when I'm around them. I need to cut that relationship off. Give no opportunity to the devil. Here's another pointer for you. It comes from James chapter 1, verse 14. It says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now here's what I want you to point out from this. Each person is lured and enticed by his own desire. I want you to ask yourself, what desire do I have? What is my greatest desire? My guess is that Uh, Judas Iscariot's greatest desire was probably something like being rich or having a lot of money. Think about it. If he was constantly stealing Jesus and the other disciples' money, and he went off and he betrayed Jesus for money, my guess is money is pretty near and dear to his heart. And so I think for each one of us, we have to ask ourselves, man, what what is the desire of my heart? First of all, is that desire healthy? If not, maybe I need to think about how that's causing me to sin. 
If your greatest desire is that you have this amazing relationship with someone else where it is just perfect and dandy all the time, uh, you may be tempted into adultery or lust of some type. If you are saying, man, like Judas, I want to be rich. I want to have a lot of money. Maybe you're going to be tempted to steal. If you're saying, man, I, my greatest desire is to be better than everybody else, and I have a pride problem, maybe you are going to be prone to gossiping. Think about what your greatest desire is, and think about what that could lead into, and then be on your guard about it. And if after praying about it, you're saying, man, I feel like here's my greatest desire. Here's a temptation that I think I'm just constantly struggling with and I'm falling into this and, 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 and sinning. Then take a cue from James 4, 7. Later on in the book of James, look at what it says. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So submit yourself to God and say, you know what? God, I'm done doing it my way. It's obviously not working for me. I'm going to submit to your way. Acknowledge, hey, what I'm doing is not working, but I want to follow you, Christ, and I want to do your will in my life, and I'm just going to submit myself to you. I'm going to repent and come to you and confess my sins. And look at this. It says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Your relationship with God in the midst of these temptations and sins. If you do it God's way, if you say, I'm going to repent and I am going to confess my sins to you, God, and I don't want to do this any longer, it can really strengthen your relationship with the Lord. And He knows what you're going through. Hebrews 2.18 tells us that. For because He Himself, talking about Jesus, has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus Himself, as we said earlier, was tempted. So if you feel like you're just constantly dealing with temptation, again, you're in pretty good company. Jesus himself, when he was here on earth, was tempted, which tells us this, it's not wrong to be tempted, right? It's just a reality of life. It's how it's going to be. Sometimes we can be, uh, feel guilty about being tempted, and then the enemy can actually bring us down and then cause us to sin because of that. No, if you are being tempted, guess what Jesus was to? You're in good company. Sin is when we intentionally choose to fall into that temptation. And we say, yes, I actually want to do that. And if you feel like, man, I really feel like I'm on the edge of that, and I just need some help, Ephesians chapter 6 gives us some help with that. Talking about this, look at this. This is uh, Keeping this in context really tells us this is a, a great thing to look at. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, uh, in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is scheming. He'll try to get you down. So what do you do? You put on the armor of God. Now, we're not going to be able to expand much on this, but I do want to read the armor of God to you. Take a look. It says, For we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take on the helmet of salvation 
and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I know that's a lot. We can't expound. We just don't have time to expound on all of those things. But I just want to encourage you with that. Put on the whole armor of God because temptations are always lurking. One more thing I want to point out from this uh, encounter that we have with Judas and the chief priests here. It says, they were glad. I want you to look at that. It says, they were glad and agreed with him. Now, look at this. Uh, Of course, if they are upset, these chief priests, these religious leaders, they're upset with what Jesus is doing, and they're saying, man, I want to get him down. I just don't know how to because he has such popularity. And then you have one of his own disciples come to you and say, hey, um, I know where Jesus is going to be, and I know how we can get him. I just need some money, and uh, then I'll betray him to you. Think about this. They're going to be like, yes, this is amazing. This is, this is too good to be true, right? I mean, this is, this is what I, we, were, we wanted to happen all the time. This is better than any plan that we could possibly think. They were glad, and look at this. I think this is really important to know. Verse 6. So he, Judas, consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now think about this. Judas consented. He agreed to it. He wasn't forced. The chief priest didn't corner him and say, hey, we're going to beat you up unless, unless uh, you know, you, you give us Jesus or, you know, we're going to blackmail you or we're going to harm your family or we're going to do all these things. No, no, no. It was a choice that Judas made. It was a willful choice that Judas made to go to the chief priests. And when it comes to temptations, if we're going to safeguard ourselves, we have to realize sin is always a choice. You may have felt guilty about a mistake that you have made, but I can assure you if it was a genuine mistake, it was not a sin. Sin is always a choice, which tells us this too. You never have to sin. If it's always a choice, there's always a choice to say no to that sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Again, you're in good company. There are other people struggling with these same temptations that you struggle with. It says, God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way, look at this, He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You never have to say yes to sin. You never have to give in to temptation. I know sometimes it feels that way. I know sometimes it feels like, oh man, I, uh, I just, I just, I, I need to do this and, and then we'll get past it. Listen, I'm telling you right now, you don't. You don't have to. And you can't sin for a good reason. You can't say to yourself, well, you know, if I sin now, I'll kind of work it out of my system and then, you know, I'll be good later on and, and, and that'll be great. It doesn't work like that. In fact, behavioral scientists will confirm God's word here. They will say, when you do something, the more you go, the more behavior that you have in this certain circumstance or whatever it is when it comes to this, the more times you do it, the more likely you are to do it in the future as well. So in essence, the more you sin, the more easy it is to sin. And those of you who have gotten caught up in that, Those of you who have gotten caught up into an addiction, you get it. 
When you are addicted to sin, when you just are constantly going to that sin over and over and over, it's hard to break that cycle, isn't it? It's really difficult to break that cycle. God gives us a way out, though. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but look at this, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You can go to God and say, I need your transformation. I need to be transformed. Conform me to your image, Holy Spirit. Later on in Luke chapter 22, it tells us, Jesus here, he tells his disciples this, pray that you may not enter in to temptation. This is in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying here and he's instructing his disciples. He's saying, hey, listen, you need to pray too. You need to pray that you will not enter into temptation. This echoes the Lord's prayer when he teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Look what it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You who have the Lord's prayer memorized know that this is part of it. Do not lead me into temptation. Get this temptation out of my life, God. But what do you do if you're saying, okay, I feel like I'm kind of stuck. I feel like not only have I been tempted, but I've fallen into sin. And I've said yes. And I'm saying, I I don't know how to get out of it. What do you feel like if you're there? What do you do if every conversation you have, you can't stop yourself from lying? Even about little things, you just feel like, I'm just constantly lying. What do you do if you find yourself in inappropriate conversations with a coworker? What do you do if every time you're home alone, you can't stop yourself from going to that certain internet website? What do you do? 1 John 1.9 tells us, It tells us, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not some, not just the easy stuff, not just the socially acceptable stuff, all of it. He is faithful. He is just to cleanse us, to make us new, to make us clean. He's faithful to do that. In fact, all throughout Scripture, even in the Old Testament, you know what the response is to sin? Yes, we know that uh, sin separates us from God, but God gives us a response. Then in the midst of this, in the midst of this separation, God says, here's what your job is. Even all the way back to the Old Testament, He would give certain responses for certain sins. He says, hey, I need you to sacrifice this, or this, or this, whatever, depending on what situation it is, here's your sacrifice. In other words, God is saying, I want you back. Come back, please. I don't care what you've done. It doesn't matter. I'm going to make it clean. You just come on back to me. I want the relationship with you. And in the midst of that, we have a promise. We have a promise. Take a look at 1 John chapter 5. This is what Grace read earlier for us. It says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Look at this our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Listen, there's only one way to overcome sin and temptation, and that's to submit yourself to Jesus. 
You can look at all of the tactics that you want to that involve behavior management and all of the different mindfulness techniques that you can, but there's only one way to defeat sin, and that's through Jesus. God says, I want you back, and there's only one way. It's through Jesus. Jesus has come. He's died for all of our sins. Why? So that we could have a relationship with him. That's what Jesus did for each and every one of us. He made that way of salvation. And it's only through him that we are saved. And let me tell you, look at this. I want to point out one more thing. I know we're running low on time, but I want to point out one more thing about this, this verse here. It says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You know what can happen in the midst of sin and temptation? If the enemy can really get a hold of us, we can really get involved in that and we could draw away from God. But at any point, we can say, I'm done with it and I'm coming to you, God. I'm coming to you. And it can actually, out of that, strengthen our relationship with the Lord. Think about it. Do you have a good relationship with anyone that you've had a fight with before? Maybe it's with your spouse or a close friend or a family member. What happens? You can really go opposite directions with a fight, right? Or one person can, or both people can confess and say, I'm sorry, I messed up. I'm sorry I did that to you. I'm sorry I said those words. And then what can happen after that? You can have a really strong relationship with that person. Married couples who have gone through a really difficult time, you get that, right? You, you can see, you know what, we went through that hard time, but now we're stronger because of it. It's like two pieces of metal, right? If you put them, you put them right next to, up, up next to each other. But what happens if they never heat up? There'll always be two pieces of metal, right? What happens if you heat them up? Things get heated between them, and then they cool off. They're one piece of metal, right? They're stronger because of it. And the same thing can happen with your relationship with the Lord. You do not have to get caught up in sin any longer. You can come to God, you can confess and repent and say, God, I need you in my life. I need you to make you less like me and more like you. I need you. And in that situation, that can serve to strengthen your relationship with the Lord and you can be stronger because of it and you can really embody the principle that we find in Romans 8.28 that for those who love God, God is working out all things for our good. He can work this horrible season that you may find yourself in for your good, to strengthen his relationship with you. And you can come out the other side of it, being a stronger Christian because of it. it don't, does it mean that you're going to be perfect or that you're never going to sin again? Listen, we're all imperfect. We all need Jesus. We're never going to be perfect this side of heaven. But here's the really good news. When you do that, when you submit your life to God, the Father no longer sees your sins. He no longer sees your mess-ups. He sees Jesus, His Son, and the sacrifice that He gave for you. So if you feel like, man, I'm just struggling with a certain sin, or a certain temptation this morning, here's what I want you to do. Submit yourself to God. Say, your way is better. I don't like what I'm doing any longer, and I want to come to you. 
confess, and repent. And you can have a stronger relationship with Jesus because of it. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice and what it did. That because of what you've done for us on the cross, we no longer have to live in our sin, but now we can come to you, God, with the assurance that if we confess and we repent, we will be forgiven. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for all of the goodness that you show to us. And God, we could never repay you, but we can live our lives in a way that would glorify you. Help us to do that in your way, God. That we would live our lives to glorify you in all that we do. God, if we have been tempted in a certain way over and over and over again, and we've fallen into that sin, God, I pray that we would come before you, that we would confess that and we would repent. And Father, also that we would find camaraderie here in this community that you've given us, the church. As a family of believers, we would surround each other and we would encourage each other to live our lives for you. That we wouldn't fall into the same temptation that Judas fell into. That he left the community. But God, that we would find camaraderie and encouragement and we could live our lives better for you because we have each other here, this church family. As we do that, God, I pray that you would help us. Give us the words to say. Give us gentleness and respect with each other and unity. And Father, may we collectively seek after you as an entire church body. That there would be no divisions among us, but that we would seek your will in all that we do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.